Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, fellow time travellers. I hope you're well. Before we get started, I just want to let you know about my Patreon site, which helps support this podcast. Every week, I post a new video there, which is filmed here at my home in Stirling, uh, in my office. Over the next couple of weeks, I'll be running a competition based on this podcast. Yeah, it's competition time, finally. Never thought I'd hear myself saying those words. And three winners will receive a personalised copy of my new book, The Story of the World in 100 Moments. So as well as competitions and new weekly videos, there's also a whole archive of films to watch that Paul and I have built up over the last months, offering a bit of personalised insight into the subjects that fascinate us uh, and how our brains work. It's the stuff that keeps us sane. Anyway, to get your hands on all of this, go to patreon.com and search for me, Neil Oliver, and I will look forward to seeing you there. Right, that's the Patreon advert done. Here comes this week's podcast, so cue the music. For millions of Irish people, for their own reasons, and, and for me, for my reasons, the rock is a is a dark silhouette that haunts my imagination. In this episode, we're fleeing the horror of famine, setting sail in a towel sail yawl and heading to an island with many names. The Vikings called it Havastne, which means the island shaped like a sharp tooth. The Irish knew it first and longest as something like Carachanor, and I'll apologise here and now for that pronunciation, but it means the lonely rock. More recently, and for the longest time, it has also been known as Ireland's teardrop. For Irish emigrants heading to North America to escape Angorta Moor, the great hunger, this was the last part of the old country that they saw. A teardrop-shaped rock that saw many a teardrop shed. I'm setting out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver, and this is my love letter to the British Isles. Hi Neil. In the last episode, we travelled with you to the beautiful green rolling hills of County Cork and found ourselves standing on the edge of a mass grave in the midst of the great hunger. Where are we this week? 
We're staying in Ireland this week, Paul, but only just uh, boarding a boat on the coast of County Cork and sailing to a remarkable little island which stands as a fitting memorial to lives lost at sea and also to the many uncounted lives driven off to be lived elsewhere. Even though it's home to a large, powerful lighthouse, it's not much more than a small, jagged rock. It's an island that is and always will be wreathed in sadness and tears. We're sailing around Fastnet Rock. The location for the love letter this week is pretty remote, I have to say, Paul. It's it's the Fastnet Rock, which is, well, it's a rock off the coast of County Cork in the south of Ireland. It's got a lighthouse on it, but it's not really a destination for most people. Uh, I think if most people see it or have seen it, it would be in the context of sailing past it or maybe flying over it. But unless you were something to do with the lighthouse or indeed shipwrecked, (laughs) it's hard to imagine why you would wash up on the fastnet rock. But it's it's a very poignant place in my imagination. And I have sailed around it, I'll come to that, but I've always... Maybe not so much in in more recent years, but for a long time, I used to listen to the shipping forecast. Mostly, I have to say, to do with the fact that I've never been a very good sleeper. I'm often awake. And of course, you get a broadcast from the shipping forecast on Radio 4 around midnight, I think. And I would often hear that because I'd often be awake at least that late. But it's on again about five in the morning. And too many times to mention, I would be awake then as well. I tend to be very wakeful through the night. And it was my habit to keep a wee, a little digital radio, a wee small one with just with headphones. And if I would waken up in the night and, you know, I wouldn't want to disturb my wife, obviously, maybe by getting up or putting a light on, I would just put my earphones in and switch on be the world service at that time. And, and I would catch the shipping forecast. And I can still remember the routine of the shipping forecast. It's sort of a lullaby, you might say, although it it, it didn't always put me to sleep. But, you know, the sort of format of it, you know, Stornoway, southeast, veering southwest, four or five, occasionally six later, thundery showers, moderate or good, occasionally poor. And they would just go through all of these names, all of these locations. You know, so you get Biscay, Trafalgar, Seoul, Lundy, Irish Sea, Shannon, Rockall, and many of these places, some of these places I could picture, you know, I had visited. Others were just names. Others were just parts of the shipping forecast. And, but the, the name that always would catch with me, like a fish hook that would catch and bite, was Fast Net. And for whatever reason, long before I ever saw Fast Net, the name was there. There was just something about it. I think, in truth, I think I really was aware of Fastnet because there's a yacht race, the Fastnet yacht race. Professional and other sailors head out from Cowes on the Isle of Wight and they sail around the Fastnet Rock and then they go in at Plymouth. And it's a race. Well, in 1979, it made the news for more reasons than one because there was almost a hurricane, a dreadful, dreadful storm, you know, Force 9, Force 10 gale sort of thing. And the 300 yachts that were out, it was just terrible timing. They got caught in it. And a total of 18 lives were lost that year, 1979. I was born in 67, so in in 79 I was, what, 12? 
and I remember it. I remember the coverage. Uh, I remember seeing, you know, helicopters winching stranded sailors from upturned hulls of, of yachts. And I remember all the heartbreak around the fact that 18 lives had been lost. And I think it would have been in my subconscious, the fast net, so that when I started making a habit of listening to the shipping forecast, if I'm honest, I think that's probably why it registered the way that it did. But it's because of that, Fastnet is a place that kind of inhabits my imagination because I would think about it in that space between waking and sleeping. I'd be lying there in my bed in the dark and the thought of Fastnet would just drift in and out of my consciousness. There's lots of factors in it because I made a documentary series called The Last Explorers and we followed in the footsteps of four Scottish pioneers we followed David Livingstone to Africa. We followed Thomas Blake Glover to Japan. And we followed John Muir to North America. John Muir is that character that's so foundational in North America. He didn't found the national parks in America all on his own, but he was part of that movement. Uh, and the fourth of four was William Spears Bruce. And he was an Antarctic explorer. At the turn of the 20th century, 1903, before Shackleton, before Captain Scott, he was down there in a in a ship called the Scotia and actually had quite a successful adventure. He went down and mapped part of the Antarctic coastline and he got everyone home, apart from one member of his crew died of a heart attack. But other than that, unlike the likes of Captain Scott, he was able to bring everybody back. But in following in, in his footsteps, we sailed myself and six others in a 50-foot yacht from the Falkland Islands in the South Atlantic to South Orkney, which is an archipelago inside the Antarctic Preserve. It's in Antarctica, it's part of Antarctica. And a 50-foot yacht's not very big, obviously, so the conditions aboard were fairly, well, cramped. But it was, it was quite the adventure, it took us a month we were, a, we were a month, it took us over a week to get down there and then we were there in the islands for 10 days and then it took us 10 days to get back, you know, so it was a long, a long haul. Were you scared? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> not like, not like scared like you are on a roller coaster, which is that kind of hair standing on end kind of terror. It was more of a kind of a smouldering sense of threat. Because it's the Southern Ocean and a 50-foot yacht is dwarfed and we spent a lot of the time with the, with the yacht over at sort of 45 degrees, you know, canted over at an angle and uh, mountainous seas. I mean, we would go, we would go down into these, into these troughs where all you could see all around you was grey water and then we would come up the other side, you know, riding up onto the back of another one and you would see the sky again and see the horizon and then, whoa, and this would go on for hours and then days. Wow. And we had to help sail, you know, so we had to be, we were involved in, you know, just doing what we were told, you know, helping to pull on ropes and and, and do the things that, that were required. But it meant that with the experience of having been on a, a lonely little vessel in a mountainous sea, after that, lying in my warm, safe bed and listening to the shipping forecast, it gave it a different reality because I would, I would listen to the names and I would listen to sometimes there'd be talk of high winds and gales and 
And I would think, oh, if I wasn't here, I could be on a little boat at the mercy of some ocean somewhere. It happens over the radio, but it's like a vital private conversation with the sailors. Anyone, yeah, fishermen, anyone out on the water. Yeah, it's crucial. It's crucially important because it brings them up to date with the weather where they are, or perhaps more importantly, the forecast of the weather about where they're about to be. And it can be life and death in, in many ways. I mean, we've got all the kit now, obviously, you know, we've got GPS and all sorts of life-saving kit, but I'll never forget, we were we were on the boat, it's called the Pelagic, and the skipper of the Pelagic is very famous in, in sailing circles, especially down in the Southern Ocean. He's called Skip Novak, an American Californian guy. In his youth, he was a very keen mountaineer, rock climber, and him and his mates realised that there were mountains in Antarctica and mountains in various places that they could get to if they could sail. So he became a sailor so that he could get to more things to climb. <laughs> By this time, he was very much, you know, he was a sort of a full-time sailor and we were able to charter his boat. He was one of the few people that could take us to where we wanted to go. And he had a slightly bigger boat as well, a 70-foot yacht, but we were in the smaller vessel he said he preferred it. He felt more secure aboard it because he reckoned that in big water, a small boat is more manageable. But in any event, I was I was interviewing him and I can't remember if this was on camera or not, but we had all these things like, we had a life raft, you know, one of those inflatable yellow donut things. Yeah. You know, if the worst came to the worst, this was going to self-inflate and we'd have got into that. And we had suits that we didn't wear all the time but if things had started to get really bad we would have put on these sort of survival suits you know these sort of zip up rubber watertight suits that would have helped us if we'd ended up in the water and obviously the, the ship was transmitting and receiving radio but the fact was by the time we were out in the southern ocean we were days away from help because it was beyond the reach of helicopters it was too far and so if we'd got into bother we'd have been at the mercy of a ship hearing us hearing a distress call and, and maybe changing course to come and get us because where we were, nobody went. Nobody was going to come across us. It wasn't on the course of where people go when they're, when they're moving cargoes around. And I said to Skip, you know, realistically, Skip, you know, if we hit... Because we had to watch for icebergs. That was one of our duties. We had to do four hours on, four hours off for a month. You could go and sleep for four hours if you wanted, but four hours on, four hours off. If you were on deck for your four hours on, especially at night, it was standing at the bow of the boat watching for growlers which are the little icebergs that, well, I say little, maybe something like the size of a floating truck, but because of their buoyancy, they're just under the surface. And if the yacht hit them, it would have been a major problem. And I, I said to Skip, you know, what would actually happen if we hit an iceberg? If you play out that scenario, he said, Neil, we'll probably drown. <laughs> <laughs> he said, we'll do what we can. You know, we'll, we'll get into our, into our survival suits. If the yacht sinks, we'll get into the, we'll get into the, the, the lifeboat, but we'll probably drown. Because, you know, nobody, nobody's coming. Um, so it was quite the experience. Uh, so ever since then, I think, it, I think I did that in about 2012 or 20, 2011, maybe. So a while ago now, but ever since then, I've, I've felt a real a kindred connection. to. Whenever I hear about people out on the big oceans of the world, I, I feel I can empathise with them in a way that previously would have been impossible for me. <laughs> So the shipping forecast, fast net, and the thought of those in peril on the sea has a real poignancy for me now. 
it registers with me because we were in proper danger. It's probably, I mean, my wife has said to me since that if either of us, she in particular, if she'd actually known what the reality of it was going to be, she would have asked me not to go. But the fact was, neither of us could really imagine what it was going to be like. You know, I knew I was going to be sailing on a yacht to the Southern Ocean, but neither of us had any experience at all of sailing anywhere, far less on the Southern Ocean. But, you know, she says, you can't believe you went now. I mean, I think about it and I think, the reality is, if I was offered the chance again, I'd go back. I would do it again in a minute. It was so amazing. I mean, it was proper dangerous. It was a properly hazardous environment. But down there, when you get away from everything, there was no humanity at all out on the ocean. We saw, you know, albatross, lonely albatrosses. We saw whales and dolphins and penguins. And once you get below a certain point heading south, the water turns into a kind of soup of life. You almost expect when you get down into the Southern Ocean that it would be desolate, like a sort of a maritime desert. You know, there'd be so cold, there'd be nothing there. It's completely the contrary. You would stand on the boat, on the the deck, there'd be no land for hundreds of miles in any direction, but the water was full of life. You'd see whales all the time, see them breaching, see them blowing their their spray, and we'd see dolphins leaping out the water, and seabirds, and, well, you know, you only get the seabirds when you're getting closer to land, but the albatross were out there these amazing 10, 12 foot wingspans and they would just, you know, maybe circle the the yacht for a few minutes and then they would just drift away. Not a beat of wings, they were just gliders. It was like watching pterodactyls from Jurassic Park. They would just silently appear and without so much as a beat of their wings, they would just... They'd disappear again. Just, Just extraordinary. We had time on this archipelago called South Orkney and there's... There's a base there, it's uh, the British Antarctic Survey are there, and bizarrely, on another island, the Argentinian Army have a base. And we spent time with both, so we were entertained by the British Antarctic Survey on one island, and then on the next one we were entertained by the, the Argentinian Army. They knew we were coming, you know, all the arrangements had been made, and they knew to expect us. And, oh, it was just it was just the most extraordinary experience of my life. I've, I've never done, before or since, I haven't done anything remotely like it. And, and if I was offered the opportunity again, I would go. So that all of that big preamble is why I wanted to have part of the love letter be about being on the sea. And I decided to hitch it to the story of Fastnet. Because of making the television series Coast, I've been on every kind of thing that floats you can imagine. From gigantic... Royal Naval aircraft carriers down to kayaks. I've been in a submarine, I've spent time in a nuclear submarine, spent the night in a nuclear submarine at 60 metres down and I love the sea, I love being on vessels of all sorts and I had the opportunity, do you remember when we talked about the cemetery at Aberstruri? The mass grave from from Angortamor, the Great Hunger. All the people who died for want of food when the potato harvest failed. Well it was the same day we visited the cemetery and then we rendezvoused with the skipper of a little antique boat. It's a tiny wee thing. It was called a towel sail yawl. A yawl is a kind of vessel, a class of very small vessel with a sail. A towel is a, is a kind of an anglicisation of an Irish Gaelic word that's spelt T-E-A-B-H-A-L but it's pronounced more or less like towel. 
So it refers to the shape of the sail. Towel sail yawl. And this guy, this skipper, he had restored this thing. He'd acquired it as a wreck. Or certainly something that was not seaworthy. And lovingly, he had brought it back to life. And he took us out and we sailed out and around the fastnet rock. So I've seen it. I've been right up close to the fastnet. And the towel sail yawl was such a wonderful craft. On, on another occasion in Ireland, I was on currachs. You know those things that they make from saplings that they shape into a yeah. boat shape and they put a skin on it, like a cow skin. Yeah. Ancient, ancient. And those things float very high on the water. So did the towel sail yawl. And they sit a bit like a gull. You know when you watch a gull on the water and, you know, when the waves come through, you know, they just rise and fall and they don't. They seem hardly to be affected by the water. Well, the towel sail yawl was a bit like that. And so we had this opportunity to sail out and around the the fast net. All of it is romanticised in my imagination because I had such a, an astonishing day. I had that day seeing, in very confronting terms, the consequences of the great hunger in the form of that mass grave of 10,000 men, women and children. And then to go out and be on this boat and be out on the water I was low after the story about Angorta Moor and, and to be out on the water was like revivifying. That day is very strong in my memory because it was so full of emotion. And the Fastnet Rock is a major threat to life. 100 feet tall, this black rock, and it has upon it a, a lighthouse. The one that's there now was completed in 1904. And it's got that oak tree trunk, you know, that slender waist, you know, and then flaring out around the base. That tree trunk design was actually pioneered by John Smeaton, who's an engineer, and he built the lighthouse on Eddystone, nine miles off the Cornish coast in 1759. And that was the shape that was taken to its extreme by the, the lighthouse Stevenson family. But in any event, on Fastnet, the lighthouse has been there since 1904. There's lots of mythical stuff around Fastnet. The keepers, the lighthouse keepers, said that they, from their perch, they watched in May 1915 as a submarine, a U-boat, a German U-boat, surfaced beside a a fishing boat. And what the crew of the U-boat wanted was fish. (laughs) They wanted food. So the Fastnet Rock lighthouse keepers, they watched as this U-boat came up beside the fishing boat and then there was an exchange, you know, the fish went onto the U-boat and then it disappeared below the waves again. And soon after, the Lusitania was sunk. The famous sinking of the liner Lusitania, 1,200 people died and it was sunk by a torpedo from a German U-boat. It was the first time that a German U-boat crew fired without previously surfacing and giving a warning there had previously been a kind of etiquette around it. You know, a U-boat would come up and would let it be known that they were going to sink the ship and they would give the crew time to get into lifeboats and get away because, generally speaking, they just wanted to destroy the ship. But the Lusitania, no U-boat ever surfaced, no warning was ever given. It was just fired a torpedo into its flanks and the ship went down and 1,200 people lost their lives and it was this, the advent of total war. 1915, it was during the First World War and it was one of those moments that changed everything where war became about causing as much damage as you possibly could, regardless of the potential loss of life. So that that happened in the... You can't be sure. I mean, this is the testimony of the lighthouse keepers, but they saw a U-boat come up, and then very soon thereafter, the Lusitania was sunk by a German U-boat. So 
a, a conclusion was drawn that it may well have been the same vessel. So there's a lot of life and death and drama and tragedy around Fast Net Rock anyway. But for the purposes of the love letter to the British Isles, the name Fast Net might come from Old Norse. You know, the Vikings got around. A thousand years ago, the Vikings were, were prowling around the, the British archipelago and they, they named half of it. Their fingerprints are everywhere and there's so many, there's so many names they left behind that are Norse. And there's, there's an old Norse word which is, well, you know, pardon my brutalised pronunciation, but it's a bit like Havastani. And it means something like the island like a sharp tooth. Havastani. And you can hear in Havastani how that might, you know, in people who are not familiar with the Norse language, they might transliterate that into fastnet. Havastani, fastnet. In the Irish Gaelic, it's a word that translates as the lonely rock. So... A thousand years ago, the Vikings were aware of it, noticed it, and saw it for what it was, which was an island like a sharp tooth. And then the Irish, for their own reasons, called it the Lonely Rock. But since the second half of the 19th century, it has most famously been known as Ireland's Teardrop. Now, funnily enough, if you can get above it, which nobody, in, you know, realistically in the second half of the 19th century could have done, it does have, from above, it does have a teardrop shape. But that's not why it's called, that's probably not why it's called the, the teardrop. It's called that because once the great hunger took hold, and, you know, as we recalled in that love letter from Aberstruri, a million people died, and maybe a million more fled to get away. Anyone that could, if they could raise the money, or if they had connections in another part of the world, they got themselves onto ships and they got away to the new world. They went away to America. Some of them came to Britain. Some of them went to Australasia. They went wherever they could get to try and start a new life. And so many ships were coming away from the south, coming away from the ports in the south of Ireland. The Fastnet Rock was the last bit of the old country that they saw. And as they looked behind them, looked back at their old lives, looked back at their own pasts, the last fragment of Ireland that they saw before it dipped below the horizon to the rear was the Fastnet Rock. And so many of them would have been looking backwards with tears in their eyes crying tears for people lost to the famine crying tears for having to be uprooted from hearth and home and everything they had known and so for that reason more than any other the Fastnet Rock has gone down in Irish folklore as the teardrop of Ireland so it's a deeply poignant place Fundamentally, when you get right down to basics, it's a lighthouse there on a rock to look after or to do what it can for those in peril on the sea. But for millions of Irish people, for their own reasons, and, and for me, for my reasons, the Fastnet Rock is a, is a dark silhouette that haunts my imagination. Ancient industry, proud and hard-working, beset by heartache the world over. Dangerously inadequate harbour walls, a hated tax and a storm on a mighty scale. Under pressure to feed their families and pay their bills, Eyemouth's brave fishermen set sail with bad weather looming. Sweeping across the North Sea, a hurricane hit, 
pounding boats into matchwood. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music is by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.